Good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. We're so pleased, as Rob said, to have joining us uh, this morning, Brenda Wineapple. Brenda is the author of several acclaimed books, uh, all nonfiction. High among them, and perhaps the best known, is the topic of today's talk, The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson and the Dream of a Just Nation. The book was named by the New York Times as one of that year's 2019 10 Best, and it's among the Times' 100 most notable books. Her other books include Ecstatic Nation, Confidence, Crisis and Compromise, 1848 to 1877, the prize-winning Hawthorne, A Life, and White Heat, The Friendship of Emily Dickinson and Thomas Wentworth Higginson. She is the editor of Whitman Speaks, which is her selection of some of the beloved poet's uh, many observations. And among other honors are a literature award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters and a Guggenheim Fellowship. As some of you know, Brenda is a regular contributor to the New York Times Books Review, the New York Review of Books, and also the Wall Street Journal. With that, please join me in welcoming Brenda Wynapper. Brenda, over to you. Thank you so much, Clark, and thank you everyone at the wonderful St. John's Church for making this talk and all of your talks uh, available. Um, it's such a pleasure to be with you today. As I've said, I wish I could be with you in person and look forward to that someday. But right now we'll make the best uh, we can with, um, as, as Clark said, with Andrew Johnson and the impeachment trial that occurred in 1868. And let me just back up a little bit and tell you how it was that I got involved in this strange, I suppose, when I started uh, topic. Um, and it was really very simple. I had written, as Clark mentioned, a book called Ecstatic Nation, which dealt with the run-up to the Civil War and the war and the aftermath. And it occurred to me that although I'm you know, fairly well-educated, I really didn't know anything about the first ever presidential impeachment. And I just should make a note, by the way, that when I began this book, the impeachers, uh, impeachment was really on no one's mind at all. In fact, we were deep in the Obama administration. This was about seven, almost eight years ago now. And so um, people thought I was a little bit strange for taking on such a dusty old topic. But I wondered, why were there no books on uh, impeachment or so few. And I wanted to know what happened and also why I didn't know about it. And actually, most people I spoke with didn't know about it. Um, when I mentioned it to people, what would come up more often than not was John Kennedy's 1957 Profiles and Courage. Some of you may be familiar with that book. And in that particular book, um, there was a chapter on a man named Senator Edmund Ross of Kansas. And in that chapter, he was presumably a profile in Courage Ross. Kennedy or Sorensen or whoever wrote the book um, soft peddled the information that Ross may have actually been bribed to cast the deciding vote to acquit Andrew Johnson. Um, and if he wasn't exactly bribed, he certainly got favors after the trial. Also, the book interestingly said that fanatics had victimized the poor president, poor president Andrew Johnson. And some of that particular view actually seemed to come 
as far as I was concerned, from another source, which was uh, D.W. Griffith's very famous, The Birth of a Nation, where uh, the impeachers, those people who wanted Johnson, Andrew Johnson, out of office, um, were cast as kind of fanatics. And as far as impeachment itself, uh, Kennedy wrote that the actual cause, therefore, for which the president, that's Johnson, was impeached and tried, was not fundamental to the nation. Um, so this this concerned me, and you know, I was thinking about this as as I do, and um, I was wondering how is it possible that the first ever presidential impeachment um, took place almost immediately, three years, not that long a time, after the Civil War and after the first ever assassination of an American president. So that to me seemed amazing, strange, uh, and surprisingly forgotten. So I began to investigate the questions of who Andrew Johnson was and what exactly happened. And to sort of set the stage for you, let me just say that, remember 1865 when the war is over and President Lincoln is assassinated, the real question that the country faced was the direction that it would take. And specifically the question would be then, under what terms would the 11 seceded states of the former Confederacy be allowed to re-enter the Union. In other words, should the states that had actually waged a war against the Union be welcomed back into the House and the Senate as if they had never left? What were the terms for that re-entry? And as we probably know now or remember, I'll remind you, is that Congress gets to decide the qualifications of its own members. So when Lincoln was assassinated, Johnson took over because he had been the vice president. The question was what was going to happen. But what Johnson did or didn't do is that he didn't call a special section of Congress to resolve these questions. Congress was in recess at the time. And instead what he um, took upon himself was single-handedly reestablishing Southern state governments by executive proclamation, executive directive. Some of these terms have become very familiar to us, um, which as I said, when I began the book, I really didn't expect that would happen. Um, what Johnson argued, and it's an interesting argument actually, what he argued was that the, since the constitution forbids secession, the union had never been dissolved. So, of course, that was, according to Representative Thaddeus Stevens, who is a progressive at the time, he said, that's like saying murder is against the law. So somebody who kills somebody else shouldn't be prosecuted because it's against the law. I mean, it just made no sense. But to Johnson's way of thinking, the Southern states should resume their place in the federal government, their rights and privileges restored as soon as their governments could be deemed loyal. All they had to do was renounce secession, accept the abolition of slavery, and swear allegiance to the federal government. The problem with that, and it was a big problem, was that what then do you do with the four million, four million black men and women recently freed, former slaves, 
but who had been deprived uh, during their servitude of not any kind of ownership of their lives, even the ability to read and write. So the question would be, what about them? What about their civil rights? Shouldn't this newly freed population be able to control their education, their employment, their representation in government even? You know, Republicans and Black leaders both asked, weren't these former enslaved people citizens? Johnson had an answer for that, Andrew Johnson. And his answer was, this is a country for a white man, and by God, as long as I'm president, it shall be a government for and of white men. That was astonishing then. It was as astonishing then as it is today. So the question is, who was this Andrew Johnson? Andrew Johnson was born in North Carolina, very poor. He was actually like Lincoln, born in a log cabin, we're told. He was a self-made man. He became senator, lifelong politician, became senator in Tennessee where he had moved. Um, But you might say then, and you might ask, how was it that he was on Lincoln's ticket in 1864? Well, the reason is actually interesting and simple. Johnson was a hero in the North because he was the only Southern Senator, only Southern member of Congress, only Southern Senator to actually speak out against secession in 1860 and for the preservation of the Union after Lincoln's election. As a result, he was hung in effigy from one end of Tennessee to another as a traitor. He was considered a traitor in the South, but the North, of course, thought of him as a hero. And so Lincoln in 1864 didn't know two important things. One, he didn't know he would win the election and he was afraid that he wouldn't. And he wanted to finish the war. He wanted to prosecute the war. He wanted to make sure the slavery was abolished. He wanted to win. He wasn't sure he would win. That's the first thing he didn't know. The second thing he didn't know was that he'd be assassinated. Both things, it was unthinkable to him that, as it is to most people. And of course, he didn't know what we know, which is he won. So in order to win the election, he did what modern politicians do. He balanced the ticket and he took a Southerner. Andrew Johnson to honest ticket. And furthermore, Andrew Johnson was a Democrat. Lincoln was a Republican. So here we have this balanced ticket. And 1864, Lincoln wins. 1865, shortly after the inauguration, Lincoln's assassinated. And then at first, the Republican Senate and House thought Johnson was going to actually work well with them. Um, They thought that because he had said treason is a crime and should be punished, he said that during the war when Lincoln had appointed a military governor of Tennessee, they thought that he would work with them to create a body politic that actually abolished slavery and the effects of slavery. But what he did as soon as he got into the White House, Johnson, was start issuing pardons to former high-ranking Confederates at the rate of about 100 a day. 
He restored their legal and property rights, except in the matter of owning other people. And um, white Southerners used this hands-off policy to concoct a new form of states' rights, which they called home rule. And what happened in the South is one legislature after another started passing what were known as black codes designed to prevent the freedmen and women from owning property, traveling, making contracts, enjoying any form of civil rights or due process. In fact, they elected in so many places, so many former Confederates to high office that, for example, Louisiana was called the rebel legislature and the police force there was made up of Confederate veterans, two thirds of the force. So that when a constitutional convention, for example, was called in New Orleans to discuss whether black men, not women, of course, should have voting rights within hours over a hundred black men and women were executed point blank while they kneeled and prayed for their lives. And in, by the time the day was over, it was such a massacre that over 300 people, mostly black, were wounded, um, perhaps more. Later, the writer W.E.B. Du Bois said reconstruction in Louisiana was a continuation of the Civil War. Meantime, Johnson was vetoing all legislation that had to do with giving citizenship to the former enslaved. Um, he vetoed a civil rights bill, he vetoed, which only conferred equal protection under the law. Um, Congress, which had uh, the ability to override his veto because it was controlled by Republicans, not only overrode the veto, but then they decided to pass to pass the 14th Amendment to enshrine civil rights in the Constitution. In the summer of 1866, Johnson hasn't been in office maybe a little bit more than a year. He actually toured the country to rally what we would call today's base, just to rally support against the ratification of the 14th Amendment. Uh, during the uh, trip, which was called a swing around the circle. He went on such a tear that he started yelling that congressmen who disagreed with him should be hanged. Ulysses S. Grant, who was asked or demanded to go on this trip, was so mortified that he actually went on a bender. He couldn't really hold his uh, liquor and they had to lock him in a baggage car to make sure he didn't humiliate himself more. Johnson himself had been so humiliating to the people who were there. But make no mistake now, we're in 1866. The decision and then the vote to impeach Andrew Johnson didn't come easily. It didn't come quickly. It was buried for a long time in the Judiciary Committee to buy time because, and we know this from today, when, when um, half of the United States impeachments happened in the last year, year and a half, no one knew what in, the impeachment of a president of the United States would mean or even what grounds were necessary. And as you probably know now only too well that conviction requires the person to be removed from, from office. That's all, that's the trial, takes place in the Senate. You need two thirds of the Senate to vote in the trial for conviction, and then the officer is removed from office. As for further punishment, 
the person may or may not be prosecuted by law. And that's pretty much it. But the question really was, what are the terms for an impeachment? We know today, as, as they did in 1866, 67, 68, that the officer, the president in this case, had to commit high crimes, I'm sorry, treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors. But what is that really? Um, nobody was really sure. In other words, are impeachments to proceed because of vi actual violations of law? such as so-called high crimes, misdemeanors, yes, treason, yes, bribery, those are infractions of law. But what's a high crime and a misdemeanor? Is a misdemeanor the same as stealing a chicken? Could you be impeached for that? Or high crimes and misdemeanors, does that mean something else? Does it mean what Hamilton said in Federalist, that it's an abuse of executive authority, you know, proceeding from a violation of public trust. Or put another way, does the president have to commit illegal acts and hence demonstrably impeachable ones? Or can the president be impeached for an abuse of power and be held accountable for actions that might be deplorable, bigoted, and reckless? So that's all difficult, as we know. And so to avoid these questions and even turmoil, Congress had been seeking to stop, to thwart, to rein in Johnson's really violent race baiting and supremacist policies with legislation that overall had been moderate. As I mentioned, the civil rights legislation and then the 14th amendment, neither of which conferred political rights. So Congress, what it did then to rein Johnson in was pass a series of reconstruction acts um, and to consolidate their, their point. And what they wanted to do was consolidate the achievement of the war by conferring, by conferring voting rights on Southern black men, again, women forget that, that's much later, which Johnson said would weaken and degrade and destroy the government. But Congress had the votes to pass these laws to do that. And it also instructed, part of Reconstruction was, it instructed the armed forces to keep the peace in the South. Because as I mentioned, there's just one terrible massacre um, and slaughter and uh, after another, uh, especially uh, of blacks, but also of white Republicans. So the armed forces were uh, sent to keep the peace in the South to prevent this violence and to protect the armed forces, the army, which protected the black, black, which protected black people, Congress also passed the constitutionally dubious Tenure of Office Act. And they passed that to protect specifically a man named Edwin Stanton, who was Secretary of War, because Stanton was protecting the army, which was protecting uh, black uh, men and women and white Republicans. Johnson then violated the Tenure of Office Act. Now, the Tenure of Office Act is easily understood. Later, it was repealed. And what it was is that if someone is confirmed by the Senate, as a cabinet member happens to be, then that person cannot be fired without the Senate's approval. And as I said, this was passed to protect Edwin Stanton because he had become radicalized by Johnson's behavior 
and he was going to protect the army, which is to say protect uh, black men and women and white Republicans. So Johnson violated this act almost after it was, <clears throat> excuse me, passed. He eagerly, openly defied Congress. He actually, what that is, is insulting it. Um, and he broke the law. That was and remains, in a sense, the legal pretext that many in the House of Representatives had been waiting for. And they felt they no longer had a choice. Johnson had this wonderful ability to unite people against him. So he united the Republicans who were conservative, moderate, and radical. Um, by the way, as I'm sure you know, the Republican party then is not the same as it is now. It's a different party. It was initially the anti-slavery party. They voted, the House voted to impeach Andrew Johnson. 126 to 47 was a, a, a very overwhelming vote to take this really extraordinary step, the first ever impeachment of an American president. Johnson, as I suggested before, was subsequently tried in the Senate, and as I said, acquitted by just one vote, the vote of the person, Edmund Ross, that Kennedy said was a hero. And I have to say, he was no hero. An impeachment was not a mistaken incident, uh, better left forgotten in American history. Because Johnson was not, as I'm suggesting to you, he wasn't impeached for violating the Tenure of Office Act alone. That was, as I said, just the efficient cause. Behind it was a recognition that even by those who had been reluctant impeachers, that impeachment was absolutely central to the nation and to its welfare and to its future, a future that had been envisioned by those who understood and felt that the time had come was long overdue to create a free and fair country. This is one of the last great battles with slavery, said Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts. He was the senator, you may know, in 1857 before the war, who was beaten within an inch of his life for his abolitionist views. But Senator Sumner felt that impeachment was the last battle with slavery. That is to say, that was still what was at issue. Sure, you have the 13th Amendment. Sure, you've abolished slavery. <clears throat> but what about the effects of slavery? What about fairness and equality and a redefinition of the country? Um, for many Republicans, that is exactly why the war had been fought. The impeachment of the president will be a hopeful indication of the triumph of our right to vote, Frederick Douglass said. It will mean that the South shall no longer be governed by regulators. That was the first term of the rising Ku Klux Klan, shall no longer be governed by them and the Ku Klux Klan, but by fair and impartial law. Well, <laughs> Frederick Douglass was partly right. The impeachment process then was a hopeful indication of the right of black men and eventually uh, men and women to vote. It was a hopeful indication of the way America was changing 
and could change. And so to conclude, what I would say is that the impeachment and trial of Andrew Johnson was actually, it's not about the Tenure of Office Act, and it wasn't forgettable. I mean, it was forgettable, but it became forgettable, it seems to me, because it was about race. And it represented yet another attempt to preserve the union and free the slaves, which to those who wanted Johnson impeached were the same thing. To preserve the union meant creating a more perfect one, liberating it at last from the noxious and lingering effects of an appalling institution that created, treated human beings as property. Kennedy was wrong with all due respect. The actual cause for which the president was impeached, he said, was not fundamental to the nation. It was very fundamental to the nation, to the declaration. And of course, it implied failure too. It meant failure at the very top, but it also implied, as I said, the glimmer of a better time coming, a better government, a fairer and more just one. It implied that the American president, Andrew Johnson, any American president was not a king, that all actions have consequences, and that the national government, an experiment conceived in hope with checks and balances, courageous, could courageously maintain itself without waging war, even right after one. So I think that's why impeachment was both important and at the same time, alas, why it was ironically uh, forgotten that we learned so little about it. But I was really uh, pleased and gratified and um, I think inspired uh, to learn uh, who Johnson was and what happened. And I hope you are too. Thank you so much for your attention. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brenda. That was absolutely terrific. Well, why don't we start the questions where you sure. left off? There's so many wonderful passages in the impeachers. And, you know, I think it's tough for us to get our heads around the concept of someone, President Johnson, who was at the same time anti-secession, which was about slavery, but at the same time pro-slavery, or at least pro-white supremacy. Yes. And, and that leads to this passage in your book, allowing white Southerners to rejoin the union quickly, while at the same time denying the black man the vote seemed to many Republicans, black and white, uh, replanting the seeds of rebellion, as Thaddeus Stevens said, which within the next quarter of a century will germinate and produce the same bloody strife, which has just ended. And that, so passionate. I mean, it was about, you know, depending on when you date the modern civil rights movement, did it start in the 50s, did it start in the 60s? But that's almost exactly right. It's chilling. That is a really chilling comment of Thaddeus Stevens. And I have to say, he was one of the impeachers um, that I felt needs to be restored to an important place in American history. Um, I remember as a kid seeing uh, Birth of a Nation, and he was figured in that as a diabolical, twisted person, a fanatic with a club foot. And that's really how he appears in Kennedy's book. But, but he was right. He really was right. And he felt that that the impeachment and the and the giving, you know, as I said, black men, but 
people, the right to vote, representation in government was the only way to prevent what actually happened, which was the South, the white South, the white supremacist South, um, you know, losing the battle, but winning the war. And he, he could see that. And that's what's so remarkable to me. To the first part of your comment though, and I think it's an important one, Andrew Johnson was against secession, but it did not mean he was against slavery. Right. You know, and, and, and it seems like we, we assume that if you're against secession, you're against slavery, but he thought slavery, and he actually he probably was right, slavery was better preserved within the union. He thought if you break apart the union and if the South secedes, then you're really going to destroy the institution. He wanted to protect slavery. I mean, one of the first things, he was very poor, he got money, had a big sort of tailor outfit. And one of the things, first things he did when he sort of achieved a higher status was buy people. I mean, that's just remarkable to me. There are a lot of people who are born in poverty who then get money, Thaddeus Stevens, Abraham Lincoln, and then they don't buy someone. I mean, <laughs> what kind of person does that? You know, that's an interesting question, but, but so be it. Speaking of buying people, can you tell us a little bit about the basis for the um, presumption that Ross was bribed to acquit? Well, you know, I wanted to find the actual, you know, material, you know, I, if I could find it, you know, whatever, almost 200 years later, uh, 150 so years later, I would have been very happy. But there, there, there is a kind of paper trail where Ross does say after the vote, you know, constantly, he's writing to Andrew Johnson, we have the, that information. Um, in appreciation for my vote, I would like this. I would like this position for this person. I would like this in, you know, because I voted this way and so forth and so on. So, so that is an indication that he was doing something. And also is, is I document in the latter part of the book, there was a lot of money that was ex being exchanged, you know? So I can't prove that Ross actually was paid. I know that he got what we would call perks or quid pro quo today, um, but there was money that was going around quite a bit. You know, there was um, a lot of that information and there was an investigation after the vote, but a lot mm -hmm. of that information has disappeared. But, but there is smoke, but there's smoke. Can you tell us a little bit about the press coverage of impeachment and of the trial? And one of the characters who appears in your book, in addition to Frederick Douglass, is Mark Twain. And there's this wonderful quote in your book from Mark Twain where he says, and he covered it, he covered the, the trial. I believe the Prince of Darkness could start a branch of hell in the District of Columbia if he has not already done it. Right. You have to love Mark Twain. One thing about Mark Twain is he's always Mark Twain. What I didn't know or didn't appreciate about Mark Twain was that he was an amazingly funny and smart and perspicacious political journalist. And he was in Washington. I mean, yes, he was writing funny stories and he wanted to write books, but he was in Washington at the time just before and when the impeachment started, then he left. Um, covering people, I have his notebooks where he talks about Thaddeus Stevens, whom he likes a lot. Um, he he was in in the Senate and in Congress in the in the 
what is reporters gallery and huge numbers of people were. And as soon as, you know, reporters and journalists, and as soon as they got information, they went to places nearby um, on Capitol Hill where they telegraphed immediately what was going on. So the coverage was enormous. You know, it was front page news for the length of the trial, six or seven weeks or so. And uh, the dispatches of Mark Twain and later the premier of France, who at the time was also in the United States covering the trial was Georges Clemenceau, which mm. is so interesting as well. And his dispatches that he's sending to Paris, this international news was, in, was um, again, it's chilling. What's chilling about it is, is they saw what would happen if impeachment if conviction didn't occur and they could predict, as you said, Clark, in your question, the future of the country. And unfortunately we know what that future was, but they did too. You said that the impeachment vote in the house was overwhelming. I'm not quite sure what the party um, split was in the house at the time, but was it bipartisan? No. No, it was overwhelming, but in, in an interesting way. I mean, when we say bipartisan, we think two parties, you know, and, and all the Republicans voted for impeachment and the Democrats, and Johnson had been a Democrat, voted, you know, not, not for impeachment. But one of the things that's interesting is that bipartisan is more complicated in that the Republicans were split and they were split into three factions, very strong factions. I would say conservative, moderate, and what were called radical, radical Republicans. Those are the ones who got a bad name. They would be considered progressives today. They were the ones who pushed Lincoln to prosecute the war more vigorously because Lincoln had been slow a little bit. You know, Frederick Douglass had always said Lincoln was a little slow, but seen from you know a distance, he, he did what he needed to do. So in that particular sense, um, what Johnson did was actually unite the Republican Party. The Democrats were not going to vote for uh, Johnson's impeachment. However, and this I find very interesting, 1868 was an election year. We've been there before. And so there was, you know, so impeachment is taking place as both Republicans or Democrats are looking at the national conventions about to happen. And in fact, part of the trial is suspended while the Republican National Convention takes place. I mean, that's what's so remarkable, but I'm bringing it up because the Democrats did not nominate Andrew Johnson. Hmm. <laughs> so you can say the vote wasn't bipartisan, but nonetheless, the Democrats didn't want to touch him anymore either. Fascinating. Some, some questions from the audience. So sure. just to clarify, the stated reason for impeachment was firing Stanton or was yes. it the Tenure of Office Act? It's basically the same thing. In other words, to fire Stanton without the approval of the Senate, in other words, while the Senate is not in session is a violation of the Tenure of Office Act. Um, so it was the same thing because Tenure of Office Act as I said, protected Stanton and those like him, but it was a cabinet member. He suspended Stanton, Stanton didn't leave. The Senate backed Stanton and didn't approve the removal. Um, and Johnson then fired, fired Stanton. And so 
you know, in a sense, Congress felt it had no choice because they pass a law and then the man breaks a law. How can you then have a government if you just allow the chief executive to break the law you just passed? And he said, you know, it wasn't a good law. It wasn't a constitutional law. Well, you let the courts decide that, which they did later on. Another question, one of the previous speakers touched on this, but you might elaborate. What yeah. happened to Johnson after impeachment? <laughs> well, what happened to Johnson after impeachment? First, he goes back to Tennessee. Um, he doesn't really hang his head. Um, and you remember that in those days, uh, senators were not elected by popular or direct vote. They were appointed by the legislature. And lo and behold, the Tennessee legislature soon sends Johnson back to Congress. He goes back into the Senate. His desk, I hate to tell you, um, is decorated with flowers. And one of the first thing he does is stand up and rail against Ulysses S. Grant. It just goes on a tirade against Grant. The Senate goes into recess, Johnson goes home during the recess and passes away. So his, his return to the Senate was short-lived, but he did come back like a bad penny, I mean, from my point of view. <laughs> and you might as well know my point of view. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all share it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you talked about uh, at least one of the impeachment managers, perhaps the most famous, Thaddeus Stevens. What about the president's defense counsel? The, I would argue that over the course of impeachments, the quality of defense counsels has varied. What were his defense counsel like? I think they were brilliant, actually. You know, William Seward, who was, you know, he was in the Lincoln cabinet. He actually wanted to be president when, you know, but, but Lincoln got the nomination in 1860. And then Lincoln, as we all know, I think, put him in the cabinet and he stayed in the cabinet under the Johnson administration. And, and Seward is a complicated person. And um, was really, many thought he was tantamount to Mephistopheles whispering in Andrew Johnson's ear. And he was very smart in many ways, much more politically savvy than Johnson, who, as I said, managed to alienate everybody. Um, and Seward had a lot of connections. He had connections, as we know, bribing for the 13th Amendment, but he probably had connections about the Johnson impeachment. And he got one of the um, uh, impeachment uh, lawyers, uh, you know, Johnson's lawyers was William Everts, who was a brilliant lawyer. And it was really an array of really terrific lawyers, I have to say. You know, their arguments um, really focused on the Tenure of Office Act, um, specifically because that was, there were 11 impeachment articles and only one really dealt with the larger abuses of power or two really dealt with that, most focused on the Tenure of Office Act. But, but while they were focusing on that, Johnson's lawyers were also, you know, really in a sense, scaring people saying, you know, um, you can't do this. You have to respect the office of the president. Um, this is really about policy. I mean, they were very deft. They really were very deft. Can you talk a little bit about the implications for today of the Johnson impeachment? That that was the closest any president's ever come because it was one vote, as you say, exactly. conviction and removal. Is the takeaway that impeachment, that impeachment along with the most recent, is the takeaway that the clause in the Constitution is essentially meaningless because it's so hard to do? No, I mean, I think it's good that it's hard to do. 
you know, that it, it's not a bad thing that it's hard to do because it's so serious, you know, and, and one of the things that was reassuring, I mean, I, I deplore what happened. I deplore the fact that he was acquitted. But one of the things that I felt <clears throat> that was remarkable was that it happened, the impeachment uh, vote and then the impeachment trial happened in an orderly, rational, serious, concerted way. And as I said, it happened right after, virtually right after a war. I mean, the country is still in very bad shape, particularly in the South, for everybody in the South, black and white. And that you can have a trial of this kind of proportion and seriousness, um, I think was very reassuring about the way the government was set up to function. It doesn't function always the way we want it to. It doesn't go in the direction we want. But there were other considerations. As I said, there was an election coming up and the Republicans were looking to their uh, candidate, their hero, Ulysses S. Grant, and they didn't want to rock that boat. So it's complicated, seriously. But, but I wouldn't say impeachment and the clauses in the Constitution are meaningless by any means at all. Um, and, and I think the recent impeachment suggests that too. Trial. One more question. Uh, one of our speakers mentioned Johnson's hatred of wealthy white plantation owners <laughs> and his fear that their freed slaves would all vote with their former masters. Was that a factor in his not wanting recently freed slaves to have the vote? No, I think it's more basic than that. And I'm sorry to say this, but I think, it, I think racism is in his case is just more basic than that. And it's, it's you know, and, and I'm not excusing it, but you have to remember he had been very, very poor and the planter aristocracy, the white planter aristocracy had excluded him. And when he got power, he wanted in some sense to be part of that and show that he was as good as they were. And in the South, you know, the way he was brought up, because since he was so low on the totem pole, he wanted people lower than him. And he and and that was black population and that's the way I think he he saw the world you know it's um it, there's a way in which it's pathetic and tragic it's tragic for the country pathetic for him and final question since you mentioned it a couple of times and it's such an important point if even John Kennedy in Profiles in Courage would yeah. argue that Edmund Ross was a profile in courage and that the impeachment was inconsequential does that just further underscore the notion that the South, the lost cause issue, the South lost the war, but won the peace? I'm afraid that's the case. I mean, you have to remember that book was published in 1818. I'm still in the 19th century, 1956. All right, you were talking about the civil rights movement. It's just starting really. It's around the same time as, you know, Brown versus Board of Education. I mean, things are really happening in the 50s and um, Kennedy's, writing that book before they quite happened. I don't think he quite gets it. And also, I don't think they did very much work. I think they took Edmund Ross's own self-vindicating memoirs as possible. And they were trying to set up a Democrat, I mean, a, a Republican who stood against the Democrats. And they're trying to, to, you know, Kennedy was thinking about running for office. 
So, I mean, there was that in that particular case as well. So it's, it's unfortunate, but it really tells us, I think, a lot about the 1950s and the 1940s and the 1930s and, you know, going back quite a bit of time, uh, alas. But, you know, I hate to end on that note. So the good news is we're not there anymore. I mean, I don't know where we are, but we're not there anymore. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Brenda, we cannot thank you enough. What a fascinating talk you've given us and what a wonderful way to conclude this session on a little known about, but very important in, in the scope of history, President. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for inviting me. Thank you. Okay.